Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, colleagues, friends, and of course, family of Professor Fred Halliday. It's nice to see such a good turnout for this memorial lecture. Um, before I introduce our speaker, I think I'd just like to make a few remarks. Uh, I used to share the office uh, next to Professor Halliday. I studied under him, worked with him as a colleague, and like so many people in this room, he left an enormous impression on me in my life and my way of thinking and working. He was one of those people who had that combination of being a scholar of the highest standards, whose reputation was built on the study of the Middle East and international relations theory. But I think what left an impression on many of us, even more than that, was his commitment to justice, to human rights, to the fight against uh, prejudice and oppression wherever he saw it. So I think the title of the uh, presentation tonight is one that Fred would be very close to Fred's heart of uh, human suffering and um, humanitarian intervention. I and I can think of no one better to deliver this than the director of the LSE, uh, Professor Craig Calhoun, whose own reputation has been built on the study of social movements and also has written widely on other topics. He wrote a, one of the best books on the Tiananmen Square massacre that I've read um, and work also on the politics and governance of universities uh, and I think this combination perhaps of social movements and university governance is quite an interesting one and cuts, it makes you well cut out to rule a place like the LSE and, and, and Or at least and to think about human suffering Indeed, indeed So um, on that note I'd like to hand over to our distinguished speaker Professor Craig Calhoun, Director of the LSE Thanks very much Thanks very much to Chris for the nice introduction. Let me add my thanks to everyone who is here, to Fred's family in particular. I barely knew Fred Holliday. I uh, knew him through his work more than in person. I think I met him probably twice in my life. Um, but Fred Holliday was one of the great citizens of the LSE, as many will know, somebody who loved the school, who thought on behalf of the school, who argued on behalf of the school and argued with others in the school on behalf of the school, which is one of the crucial roles of a good citizen. Fred was um, indeed a scholar who did wide-reaching work in the Middle East. I actually first encountered him through a slightly off-center interest. Fred wrote... Um, a, an early and important book on the Ethiopian revolution with Maxime Molyneux, and that was really the beginning of my first encounter with him. And it's at least glancingly relevant to this because I worked in the early 1980s in the Sudan at a time when the Sudan had an influx of Ethiopian and Eritrean refugees and began what became the intellectual and personal and, and sort of activist explorations that lead to this talk at that point. And, uh, and Fred was somebody who could never be contained by simply the idea of an area expert, because he was always questioning beyond and within that and looking all over the world. And this talk will attempt to look at something that is a global issue that has particular locations and I will suggest in a certain way in which we forget the local contexts, and that becomes a problem for understanding this. I think there are 
many more occasions, this is hardly the only one, where we let the global become a word for things that we imagine are happening on a very large scale that we can think about without knowing their local and immediate contexts. And I think we lose a lot when we try to think of the global that way, rather than as built up in a sort of patchwork quilt of lots of local contexts, involving different perspectives when you look at it from different places. And I'll try to highlight a little bit of this in thinking about the idea of the humanitarian emergency. Now, let's see if I can actually know. Okay, I will or I won't. We'll find out. I can do it with this. Um, I would be out here, not the clicker. Human suffering is hardly something new. Throughout human history, there have been a myriad of ways in which humans have suffered, have made each other suffer, have confronted difficulties with nature around them, and indeed artists have portrayed this for a very long time. So one of the first things I want to ask is to have us question the idea that the humanitarian response, which we make to tragedies around the world, is simply the result of those tragedies. That it's simply because something bad has happened that caused suffering that we respond. It's more complicated. Of course, bad things happen. A variety of different kinds of bad things happen to people. Um, and the, there's even a differentiation as technology produces new versions of these. But the mere fact of suffering doesn't explain humanitarian response. The idea of emergency isn't a neutral term. I'm going to suggest it is in part a construct with a history and a sort of political, economic, and cultural context. Of humanitarian response like emergency is a category by which we take hold of some things in the world or try to. It's not just a neutral description. And these categories that we use to try to understand the world also shape our response, our action. They, um, they also, though, shape the reproduction of the very things that we're responding to. And this I would like to think about in the term of social imaginary, that we have a socially organized way of imagining certain things in the world and making them real through that. Now, I don't mean, obviously, that human suffering is only real because we imagine it. I mean that imagining it as something in this particular package, which I'm going to try to lay out, the humanitarian emergency that entails a specific kind of response requires imagining. But let me say a, a word or two more about this idea of a social imaginary. First off, I don't really mean imaginary versus real, the way we sometimes use the word, oh, there are imaginary things like ghosts and there are real things. Um, like living people or chairs or something. What I mean is that as we perceive the world, as we think about it, as we take action, we rely on ways of thinking, ways of imagining what's going on. Think of the nation state. And how does the nation state exist? Not simply in material terms. The lines that exist on maps around nation states do not exist on the land around nation states in the same way. The nation state is a way of imagining what a polity is, of understanding how people and state fit together. Or think of a business corporation. 
a business corporation, Unilever, or something like that, exists partly because we believe it exists, because we think in certain ways, and that is supported by contracts and a variety of law, but it's also supported by the fact that we imagine it into reality. Um, The more equipment, wow. The, um, thank you. The two examples aren't part of this, but what I want to suggest is this idea of making the world in part by the way we imagine it is important in lots of areas of life. In the case of a business corporation, a famous legal opinion in the U.S. from Justice Marshall said, a corporation has no soul to damn, no body to kick. And so the law had to think of ways to manage corporations that were different from how you would manage a living flesh person. Now, I want to suggest that we conjure something up called the emergency, the humanitarian emergency, and even, I'll suggest, the human in something of the same way. So let me go back to an early phase of this. I'm going to suggest emergencies in this sense are in a certain way specifically modern. And here we are at the beginning of the modern era and at sort of the cusp, the beginning of the emergency as a part of this. In 1755, Lisbon was largely destroyed by an earthquake. The predominant way of imagining this, that is, of understanding what was going on, is signaled by things like the pictures of angels in uh, the uh, painting, right? That this could be God's wrath visited on Lisbon. This could be explained by the failures of the people of Lisbon in terms of either their religious practices or other parts of their um, propitiation of God. It was clearly a disaster. And that word suggests another imaginary, a misalignment of the stars. The root of the idea of the disaster is in astrology, in the notion that the stars were crossed, the stars were wrong, hence the disaster. Right? Clearly, a terrible thing happened. We know the Lisbon earthquake, not just through art, but most likely, if any of us know it in the room, it's through Voltaire's Candide, um, in which it figures as a central bit of the story. Um, it was an occasion for charity. Indeed, Britain sent charitable assistance to Lisbon, to Portugal, after the earthquake. Already the relationship founded on port wine, among other things, um, existed. But of course, it took many weeks before there was any action. The Lisbon earthquake was not experienced as being in, a, in the same moment. It wasn't simultaneous with the reality of people sitting at home in London. They heard about it weeks later, and if they wanted to do something, send some assistance, that took weeks to do. Right? Now, I'm going to suggest that some of this changes. Right? The charitable response also isn't humanitarian action in the same way. It's organized almost entirely through the Catholic Church, on the one hand, and through one international relation, that is Britain's relationship with Portugal, um, and a particular trading set of links that exist. It's not humanity as such that motivates it, right? but a web of relationships. Now, not everything has changed. Right? When New Orleans was inundated by a hurricane, right? the man in the lower picture, John Hagee, said this was divine wrath for the sexual transgressions of the people of New Orleans. When Sichuan province in China 
was hit by an earthquake. The American actress Sharon Stone said it was bad karma because of China's treatment of Tibet. So there are still people who believe in much the same things that were at issue in 1755, but I note you laughed. And people didn't laugh when they said God was angry in 1755. Right? There was a much more widespread acceptance, on the one hand of fate, on the other hand of religious and astrological explanations. So we're less likely to accept fate. When we hear about terrible things happening in, say, Darfur, we don't say, well, that was the fate of the people of Darfur. Okay? Or maybe some of us do, but kind of privately, oh, well, not my problem. But many people send money through charities, call for their governments to take some kind of action, believe something should happen. So we believe in material causes. Sometimes we think it's human beings. Right? In the case of Darfur, we're angry at General Bashir and the government of Sudan, and we have human beings behind it. But in any case, we think there are material factors. We may or may not go so far as to analyze, in the case of Darfur, the link to global warming and the drying up of water and supplies for wells for the people who, in Darfur who have been um, watering animals from those wells for generations are now brought into competition. We may say it's ethnic conflict. Right? We have a way of accounting for that and ignoring the things that we're complicit in, like the global warming. But we believe in material causes and with them the capacity to do something, the capacity to help, to act. And the idea that you're obligated to act has as an underpinning that you can act, right? that in some way you can. Visual media produce some of this immediacy. And other things like global markets and military operations prove to us that we can act. We know that we can go and bomb countries a thousand miles away. We know we can sell products all over the world. And so in some sense, we know we can do things at a distance. And some of us would like them not to be just selling and bombing but also helping people. Okay? And the visual media play a crucial role in creating a kind of simultaneity that there wasn't in 1755, a sense that we know what's happening, as it were, in real time, that it's part of the same world that we inhabit in a continuous way. The media circulate images. You can almost immediately see them as images of humanitarian emergencies. If they come up, these sorts of images, on TV, you're going to get one of a very small set of kinds of stories. Uh, it's not insignificant that if you see men, um, you will often see them dead or carrying weapons. Uh, women and children are the suffering victims of these stories, and there's a whole visual rhetoric of how they're portrayed. There are crowds often more than individuals. There's a particular account, but you know you're going to get a story. If you're lucky, it might be good news story, right, um, that a particular rebel group has surrendered to the government, as just happened in Congo or something, but not always. Natural disasters also produce a variety of emergencies, and they produce their own sort of visual rhetoric and their own accounts. Here we have, again, women and children. There's a sense of immediacy to all of this, of simultaneity. When there is a nuclear meltdown, when there is a plane crash, when there is a civil war, when there's an atrocity committed, we tend to know about it and feel it in real time. Um, and, whoops, what's happening now? There we go, I'm going the wrong way for some reason. Um, the structures are 
global in the way I said at the beginning, and almost context independent. Right? So here we have pictures from a variety of different places, and we um, yet have fairly interchangeable imageries right? that are not imageries of any particular place. They're imageries of the state of war or emergency in many ways, more than of the particular uh, political or cultural context of what's going on. Um, Darfur, which I mentioned before, um, was for a number of years a sort of the, the emergency of the moment, right? At any given time in the world, there are um, somewhere between 30 and 50-some-odd um, emergencies that are being classed that way by UN agencies and those who keep track. Relief Web, if you want to look at it, keeps a regular running sort of account of this. It's a good update. But there are always one or two or three that are in the media and dominate consciousness, not the whole 50. Darfur had a long run as the emergency of the moment. And it became the name of an emergency. Many of the people who knew that there was an emergency, who knew there was a disaster in Darfur, could not have told you where Darfur was. They might have thought Darfur was a country, right? And not a region of a country, at least today. And of course, historically, Darfur is a sultanate, and it has a different existence. There's a whole history to this that is also elided and forgotten, because emergencies tend to take place in places that we imagine without much history and without much of the rest of this as just the account of the bad thing going on, a decontextualized account of the place. And the, the kinds of media images support that, that here we have people in colorful gowns at a feeding station, but we don't have, in a strong sense, um, an account of any sort of pre-existing social organization or things that are going on besides those dominated by the emergency. But the images make distant suffering, Darfur, Congo, right, floods in Bangladesh, picket, make distant suffering seem immediate. Now, this alone, as I said before, doesn't make action feel mandatory to people. There are famous passages in both uh, David Hume and Adam Smith in which they reflect on the uh, mental image of a terrifying earthquake in China. And what would this mean? Is there a real question is how much sympathy do we feel? And that the point, Smith's version of this is um, that um, we feel sympathy in concentric circles. It's basically a declining function of distance. Um, Hume comes up with the, the sort of biting and terrible image that the European who hears about a devastating earthquake in China is upset and feels a great sympathy and thinks this is terrible, but does not have his day, let alone his life, disturbed as much as he would if he had had the slightest cut on the end of his little finger. Okay? That is, we're able to read the news account and distance ourselves from it. Now, some people distance themselves less well, and this is part of the change, right? That in the 18th century, Hume's description would have suggested, therefore, nobody does anything about it. But in the 21st century, in fact, by the late 20th century, there were more and more people who felt something should be done, wherever the emergency was. And I'm going to trace a slightly paradoxical curve in that story, right? So suffering seems avoidable, not just a fate. You can have the sniffing dogs to find the people after the earthquake. You can have the medical care. You can bring in supplies. Right? You can do things to reduce suffering. Right? Collective action is possible. Right? And we ought, therefore, 
to deliver it. And the world is quite remarkable in the number of people who will give money and time and sometimes even their lives to trying to help people to whom they have no personal connection. And that's a key ingredient. These images are images of strangers. The imaginary of the humanitarian emergency is not about people with whom we have a relationship. It is not about helping the person next door to you. It is not about helping the members of your family or about solving the problem of poverty and inequality in your own town, right? It is about helping someone at a distance who is suffering. It's specific in that way. Distant, anonymous persons are its objects. They come from other cultures and groups, but sort of generically in a certain way. The photographs, two of my students and I did a study of the, the photographic imaginary of the emergencies. The photographs tend to represent people who are clearly other in some cultural way. They have costumes that are different, but they're not specifically other in strong senses. They almost never show Right. One point in the study, actually years running of looking at Time magazine photographs of humanitarian emergencies, they almost never show a flag or something that is nationally identifying. These are people, full stop, not citizens of a country, people located in that sense. They're often racially marked. Right? They're black or brown, but they're not located in the same sense. There's sympathy despite difference, but not connection in quite every sense of the word. Refugees, displaced people, are paradigmatic examples of this. And here we have faces. We don't always have faces and persons. We often have um, series, right? Lots of the photographs that, uh, and films that evoke the suffering, evoke it in what we might think of a series, following Walter Benjamin's ideas of the serial in this. We have lots and lots of token of the type person standing in a row, waiting to be fed, waiting to be moved, trying to get through a fence, walking beside a road as they flee. Refugees are really paradigmatic examples of the humanitarian emergency. And much of the thinking about it and action really started with thinking about what to do about refugees. And this began to take off in that context, though there's an older history, as I'll suggest. So I'm trying to evoke this idea of how we think about them. And here again, we have, um, I mean, I've in many ways, wonderful picture, but a picture of these people who are in motion, in a series in a distributed way, where we can't quite pick them out individually. Humanitarians, the people who deliver humanitarian assistance, focus paradigmatically on strangers, on humanity, rather than on those with whom they share civic solidarity. Now, this is the basis of important parts of the whole idea of humanitarian assistance being neutral, being impartial. The classic idea of the Red Cross, you help everybody who is suffering, and that's the basis for not being shot by either side in a war, because there with your Red Cross, you are not taking sides, you are neutral, you are helping anyone who is suffering. So the idea of impartiality and neutrality is very, very basic. One of the interesting things that's happened to humanitarian action is an intensifying call for humanitarians, people who focus on the human in this sense of impartially helping the suffering, to become enforcers of human rights, to take up another idea with this closely related root in the human, um, but then not to be impartial, to be on the side of the suffering against the perpetrators. And there has been a considerable tension and argument for a decade or more about this, and it's been blamed for a number of deaths 
of the people delivering humanitarian assistance, even before the Iraq-Afghanistan era of working with governments and militaries, the idea of impartiality was a protection for the humanitarian aid worker that was lost with some kind of taken sides. And the focus was overwhelmingly on relieving suffering, something very basic and human. You know, wasn't about helping you build a better life afterwards. It was mitigating the suffering, very immediate in a short-term sense, not creating a new social order, not politics. Now, the human that is so central to this is not a self-evident category. Most people, most places, most parts of human history have not had exactly the kind of category of the human that underpins this notion of humanitarian action, this notion that there are lots and lots of equivalent people out there each deserving of our concern in the same way. As distinct from saying, well, I have my brothers and I have my cousins, and there's this network of people flowing out from my brothers and cousins with whom I have less close relationships. This is about people who are strangers. They're not your brothers, they're not your cousins, they're people. That's the thing that makes you have something in common. Now that's a relatively distinctive idea. Many peoples in history have had basically, even linguistically, um, a language in which the people are the people inside a certain group, an ethnic group, a national group, and others outside them are something else. So here we have a very universalistic idea. Everybody in any of those groups, or rather without any of those groups, right, a stateless person, are um, people in the same sense. This transcends religion, it transcends nationality, it transcends kinship. It replaces the idea of particular ties, particular connections with the idea of equivalence among strangers. We're all the same. Um, now, various religions have ideas like this and have taught things like this. The parable of the Good Samaritan uh, for Christians is trying to teach something of this sort of idea that, that people from different ethnic groups owe obligations of care, even though they're not connected in the same way. And many religions have some of this idea, but also lots of ideas about helping within the religious community. And what part of the action of humanitarian relief specifically is reaching beyond that. So when Islamic Relief was organized, in Britain in fact, as a relief organization working among Muslims, one of the first tenets that was insisted on was that it would not deliver assistance only to Muslims. A variety of people said, oh, Islamic relief, that will be relief for the Muslims, right? And the founders of Islamic relief said, no, that's relief by the Muslims. That's who's organizing it, but we're going to help whoever is suffering. And went out of the way to sort of point that up, as among other things, to sort of remind people that it wasn't only Western secular ideas that had this notion of universally caring about people. This notion of ethical universalism, though, which we find, many of us, I think, very attractive in lots of ways, as involving a certain notion of, of um, caring for everybody, of fairness, also has a complication. It can very easily be reduced to what uh, Agamben has called the world of bare life, the idea of the minimum, the minimum thing that is the lowest common denominator of the human. You know, you're breathing, and you have most of your body parts still. Um, and this is an issue. He talks about a way in which this penetrates all of our thinking, that keeping people alive becomes the issue, and we forget that those people think and have culture, have ideals, have possibly a politics, because what we've focused on is this lowest common denominator of bare life, 
of establishing that they have something to drink, that they're not starving, they had minimum medical care. And he suggests that this has been very basically influencing not just humanitarian action, but much of the way we sort of think about the world, this notion of bare life. This is rooted in part in administration by states as well as in humanitarian action and in what Foucault called population thinking that's relevant. It has a history that goes back to imperialism and the challenges of administering far-flung settings in the world, populations. The very idea of the human has a paradoxical root in the inhuman character of imperialism sometimes in the ways in which European colonialists said those other people aren't quite human and provoked debates about who was really human. So the Valladolid controversy, for example, is a major debate shaping Catholicism, Western thought, law, on the question of are the natives of the New World human? Do they have souls? And this is a a great classic debate so that you have people um, arguing each case. So Bartolomé de las Casas, famously says, they have souls. Therefore, our obligation is to convert them. He doesn't say they have souls, we should leave them alone. He says, therefore, they have souls, we should convert them, but not kill them and not enslave them. Whereas you have the argument for slavery being made on the grounds of Aristotle, in fact, by by Sepulveda, in contrast, you have Vittoria with an emergent natural rights idea. My point isn't to go back to this Spanish argument so much as to say, note that there's a history of developing this idea of the human. The first impulse of the European conquistadores, in this case, is to treat the people as not human. But out of extensive debate, with some struggle, comes a new idea of the human in which the human transcends the us-them difference, becomes something that cuts across. But the notion persists that the natives can't govern themselves, which keeps being given as a justification for colonialism into the middle of the 20th century, and arguably is a justification today for all manner of action, and even some things connected to humanitarianism. When there is an argument that says something like, we must wage a humanitarian war, intervening into a country and killing its leaders because they are oppressing the people, isn't the statement something like the natives can't govern themselves? Now, it's a challenge to think all of this through. Right? Colonial administrations also managed far from populations. And they, they developed, as Foucault said, as sort of thinking in terms of populations in various senses. And here a map of the density of population in the British Indian Empire and so forth. But thinking in this way and developed good things like public health. The real root of modern public health systems is largely British colonial administration um, trying to administer um, the issue of health and worry about infectious diseases uh, in India and elsewhere. Uh, also, management science has roots in colonial management. Right? So fields are involved in this. Anthropology, development studies, all manner of intellectual projects are shaped by this effort to deal with those large populations of other people as distinct from particular relationships, again, as distinct from connections, the people at home. Charity, an age-old ideal, and I don't have time to go into all the histories of the various strands of this, gets transformed by humanitarian thinking more than any other time in the struggle over slavery in the 18th century and the early 19th century. 
There's an old idea of charity, but the old idea of charity is precisely non-transformative. Whether we're talking about zakat in Islam or we're talking about Christian obligations or other versions of this, it's rooted in ideas like the poor shall always be with us and we must treat them with charity. Care, right? But not expect to eradicate poverty. Not expect to transform the situation, but to behave with decent care towards it. Charity also, for the most part, has a fairly local and at-home sort of structure for a long time and only very gradually becomes a long-distance operation, as it is with Oxfam or other kinds of organizations today. The anti-slavery struggle was an interesting and pivotal moment in this story because it basically centers on saying, right, um, am I not a man, as the text says there, right? am I not also human? Right? And note the two languages that are used, the kind of humanitarian language, I'm a man, you should respect me as a fellow human being and not enslave me, and a brother, borrowed from more of the Christian religious tradition and the idea of claiming a sort of connection. You're connected to me. We're brothers. They're, these are the two different sorts of languages for establishing um, some obligation to treat people better. And we've tilted very far in many ways towards the human rather than the brotherhood account of this to equivalence rather than connections. Um, and increasingly to rights rather than charity as the way we think about helping people. Well, this anti-slavery movement is interesting in two ways in this connection. One is, of course, that it becomes a worldwide movement that then sets the stage for lots of others, particularly the the Wesleyan movement in Methodism and a variety of others who campaign and who say things like, slavery is a national sin in the U.S., and it must be eradicated. We're all sinners if we put up with a country that does this, and we must eradicate it. So there's a a sort of large-scale humanitarian objection to it, and it forges a consciousness. It's rooted in sympathy, again, like that Adam Smith account. It's rooted in getting people precisely to not be like Adam Smith or Hume. Remember their account, less than the cut on the end of my little finger of what happens to a distant person. Here the idea is, no, I have to share in the suffering of a slave that I don't know on a boat that I've never seen, and I have to stop that suffering. That's the humanitarian connection. Um, And it's an important and moving part of the story. But the story itself has another point to it, which is that it tends to be told as a story of white anti-slavery campaigners forgetting the anti-slavery action of the slaves and of the other people in potentially enslaved populations. It's a story told as though it's all about the outsiders. And like many things in the humanitarian story, including the imperialism, but also some modern humanitarianism, it divides the world into actors and those who are acted upon. So the question becomes, are you good or bad towards the slave, rather than, right, what does the slave do? Can the slave claim his or her own freedom in some sense? The disasters in the colonial era were many and shaped some of this and had their own early visual repertoire. Um, And the starving, stick-thin colonial figure was a widespread version of that. But they were crises for states. Almost all the response to something like the the Bengal famine 
was a response by government, not by NGOs, not by some human-to-human kind of organization of humanitarian assistance in this, the multilateral organization. It was states who were shamed by the press into feeling they had an obligation to do something, rather than ordinary people motivated. Now, a little bit later, the founding of the Red Cross produces a different bit of history into the humanitarian story. Um, and very much emphasizes this idea of neutral care. It has sort of two nearly coincident um, starts with Florence Nightingale and with Henri Dunant, um, but each of them involving the attempt to care for people in war, right? to say, war is terrible, I can't stop the war, I can minister to the person who's been hurt in the war, whether a soldier or a bystander. And in each case, it was rooted in various ways in Christian faith, but it quickly spread beyond that quickly spread to be a a widespread idea um, that at some level accepted bad things happening in the world, but tried to reduce the suffering they caused. Humanitarian reform movements became increasingly widespread throughout the 19th century and into the 20th, um, and the the change in prisons, in poor relief, in mental hospitals, schools, (coughs) as well as in the way colonial administration worked, was very substantial. And lots of what it involved was a kind of rationalization. That is, the reform of prisons, the reform of mental hospitals, was partly to rationalize the way in which people were cared for. Jeremy Bentham, our neighbor just up the road at University College, um, was a central part of this movement, an indefeasible uh, reformer. I, I invite you to note his head between his feet. Although he was a great advocate for rationalism, he did have himself pickled um, and uh, uh, preserved. Uh, the, the heritage of this rationalist movement was in many ways a sort of managerial orientation that persists in this world. So on the one hand, we're trying to minister to people who might die, keep them from dying, keeping them from being sick, help them. But on the other hand, we're trying to restore order in the world, trying to bring a better rational order, trying to manage crises. And a large part of the orientation of the world to humanitarian, to the places that have humanitarian crises, say to the Congo today or something, is we need to manage that. We need to watch out. It could spread. It could be a problem in a bigger way. Manage it somehow. This managerial orientation is very pronounced. And the management of humanitarian aid is a big deal for governments and for a variety of multilateral organizations. By rationalization, I also mean turning the chaos of people fleeing as refugees from a war in a country into tents arranged in neat rows. I mean, bringing order and the actual even emotional effectiveness of this, the helping to feel, I've done something, we've produced a more orderly outcome. Now, on the one hand, this is materially better. You have a tent over your head, you're not getting rained on. But on the other hand, it is a very interesting sort of alignment. No villages anywhere ever look like this, right? Um, It is a very interesting thing, these sorts of rational arrangements of the structures. So what we call humanitarianism is at once a material force in the world. There's even a humanitarian trade fair, right? Um, in which you can go and check out mosquito nets that you can distribute if you want to buy them and other things. It's a large industry. It's not an industry on the scale of the defense industry or something, alas, but there's one side of it that is this whole organization of money and human action. On the other hand, it's a cultural construct that has all this sort of history that I've tried to describe as a social imaginary. And it changes in important ways around the 1970s. 
So I've given you some old history already with slavery, with the Red Cross. Humanitarian action is beginning in the world. We're caring for people, something like this. But there are a lot of competing projects. Say revolution, right? Or economic development. A lot of other projects, if you're young and you're energetic and you care about people who are suffering in the world, you might think the thing to do is to change their government by a revolution. Or you might think the thing to do is to pursue economic development so that they aren't always being kept underdeveloped and poor by the global capitalist system or something. Well, there's a particular dating to this. The modern large-scale humanitarian enterprise takes off in the wake of 1968 and in the weight of the approximately contemporary, 67 more, um, exposures and growing consciousness that the communist world wasn't turning out to be much nicer. Um, so that you have a great disillusionment in large-scale projects of political and economic change after the 1960s, after a sort of widespread enthusiasm, or really after the whole post-war boom, after World War II, for about 30 years, les trente glorieuses, as the French say, there was broad economic growth. And you could debate, did it really bring equality? Did it really help everybody? But there was a lot of economic growth, and you could sort of believe in a project of using economic growth to make things better. And there was a post-colonial era, globally, in which the end of formal colonization created the sense that, well, now we'll be able to benefit. Now we'll be able to have schools. Now we'll be able to have hospitals. Now we'll be able to have economic growth. Now we will have freedom. And there was a lot of optimism about development. Sometimes it was revolutionary optimism. It was, well, of course we'll have to have a revolution first. Then we can have this good post-colonial future. But there was an optimism to it for a long time. That optimism began to dissipate in the wake of 68. Either people thought, well, you can't bring desirable change through revolution. The bad guys always end up on top, not the good guys. The people who wage the revolution, the peasants, try to throw off the yokes of their oppressors, but they end up with new oppressors instead of yokeless. Right? So there's a sense that revolution doesn't work for as many people as had thought it would, and a dissipation of that. There's also a sense, though, of conventional economic development. Throughout the 50s and 1960s, there have been all kinds of large-scale economic development projects based in foreign assistance, um, some of them with very strong collaboration with governments, and there's an end to an era of sort of believing in development in the 1970s. And the 1974-75 crisis... Um, the Yom Kippur War, the rise of, of the new sovereign wealth funds, OPEC in a different Middle East, a story that Fred Holliday was central to telling, right, is part of this story of a transformation after this era, this post-war era, and into something new and fraught. And it's in that context that modern humanitarian action takes off. Mozambique in 1973 remains one of the few really clear success stories of humanitarian action where that really was possible to deliver a lot of assistance, change people's lives, and have a transition that works pretty well. Um, and so people still today, when asked, how do you know this is a good investment? Go back, well, Mozambique, right? And there were things. But there were lots of not such good stories. Biafra, right? And Biafra also mobilized through cultural institutions, photography and film and the concert, um, the, the Bangladesh um, issues. They, there were just many, many of these issues in the midst of this crisis. And 
people tried to take hold of it. Now, with the loss of faith in revolution or political change and economic development, the humanitarian emergency comes forward. And it comes forward with an idea of witness. Médecins Sans Frontières, born precisely in this period, is a key promulgator of this notion of witness. Taken from Catholic religion and Catholic religious heritage, the idea that if you can't change things, at least you can witness them. You can be with people. Témoignage, that you can um, be part of things. You can point out what's going on even if you can't do something about it. Well, there's a, a heroic side to this, and yet there's this sort of tragic admission, I can't do anything about it but witness, but point it out. And this becomes an important ideology. Médecins Sans Frontières is founded largely by French Maoists who lose their belief in the particular version of a communist revolutionary transformation, which they expect. Now, some of them, like Bernard Kouchner, go all the way, winding up as ministers of foreign affairs or as agents of the UN um, in Kosovo. But for the most part, what happens, the Médecins Sans Frontières founders believe in witness. They begin to develop a notion of caring for people, a little bit like the Red Cross, slightly different, um, no matter which side they were on, whoever is suffering, and trying to reduce suffering. And they insist on various other things, like no counting. It's not about did you save one life or ten lives or a hundred lives or an efficiency measure of the economic investment and how much you got back. It is something good in itself. Right? A value rational in Weber's sense. Good in and of itself. And it involves a solidarity with those who suffered. Right? Not personal solidarity, but a kind of large-scale collective solidarity. It's humanitarianism against politics in a certain way. And this, the challenge to politics and to economics is profound. The humanitarians are going to work outside the state and outside the formal economy in a different world, a kind of gift economy. Right? This is the largest scale gift economy that the world has managed to produce. It's going to try to work without conventional economics. And the argument is largely that if you get involved in trying to get political power, you'll be corrupted by it. If you get involved in trying to help people through money, you'll be corrupted by it. Money and power corrupt. So if you want to do something pure, if you want to take action in a way that speaks directly to human suffering, then the way to go is to avoid this. Now, this feeds into some other and somewhat more problematic issues because you might think states actually are sort of important. Having a state might be important. If the Congo is going to solve many of the problems that have led to recurrent violence over a generation, they may depend on having a good state rather than having no state. But a sort of 1960s anti-authoritarianism becomes a part of the humanitarian movement. States are bad. States cause problems, right? We must help people, in a way, bypassing this. And we have an era we've lived through for 40 years in which, ironically, the left and the right wing, which agree on very little, agree that states are bad. So it's actually the people, the Thatcher Revolution and Ronald Reagan and the Milton Friedman followers and the Hayek followers and all the people who have a libertarian right-wing individualist critique of the states actually, ironically, are matched by left-wing romantic critics of states. And so nobody is really standing up for states during this period. And the humanitarian emergencies are very largely not just where states are bad, but where states don't work. Okay. But you can witness. This is James Orbinski, the head of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières in Canada. He's in Rwanda. He's obviously not uh, been able to prevent things. He's the man who accepted the Nobel Peace Prize for Médecins Sans Frontières, but who acknowledged 
that while Médecins Sans Frontières tried to do good, the one thing it had never shown itself able to do was to bring peace. Moreover, the humanitarian emergency begins to reveal itself as a view of crises from the view of the global cosmopolitan north, or the center, if you will. Um, the humanitarian seen from a distance. Now, it's not just that people are working on the distant problems, not the close at hand. It is, it's all about being a well-intentioned outsider in many ways, and the narrative is that. Remember what I said about slavery, that the story of anti-slavery movements exaggerates up the role of the whites helping the slaves and exaggerates down the role of the slaves helping themselves. Less attention to that. There's been a little bit more recently. Well, the same thing in humanitarianism. The story comes to be how various international actors flew to the scene of an emergency and brought aid. But most assistance is delivered as in this picture, which is a picture from Sichuan in China, where a local woman is helping another local woman. Right? Um, and that's actually how most assistance comes in every major disaster and tragedy. Overwhelmingly, it is delivered by other local people. This doesn't mean the international people don't help. They bring resources, they bring medicine, that there are roles. But a very large part of whatever is done after an earthquake in Haiti, in the midst of a war in Congo, is done by other people locally. So the way in which we think about this as all about distant suffering and distant action is in certain ways misleading in this. Distant suffering, though, it's compelling. Right? This has become a narrative. I actually think it may be slightly in decline, but for a generation, this was one of the world's top stories of how to try to be morally good. There was even Eurobarometer data that showed that um, young adult Europeans asked what was the most purely good thing you could do in your life, cited delivering humanitarian aid. Now, all of this has behind it, I said at the beginning, and I'm getting closer to the conclusion here, um, what I call an emergency imaginary. And it's not false, again, this isn't not true, but it's a way of seeing the truth, highlights some things, obscures others. So emergencies are held to be sudden, unpredictable, short-term exceptions to some allegedly normal order and to compel response. Now, are they sudden? Well, they tend to burst suddenly onto our TV screens after they've been going on for quite some time in whatever place they're happening. The suddenness is often the moment of attention in the West, right? while there have been suffering going on for weeks, months, years, and sometimes goes on for years and years, and it looks like two or three different times that something happened, but that was the two or three different times when somebody got it a lot of media attention. Okay? Not so sudden most of the time. Um, unpredictable? I'm going to suggest not so much. Not as unpredictable as are often thought. There usually are lots of predictions, lots of accounts. The UN, in pretty much every case that is now cited as an emergency on the relief web, has issued reports saying there's an emergency coming weeks or months before. Right? That harvests have been bad, there's a weather disaster, and there's going to be starvation if we don't do something in six months. And sometimes the World Food Organization and others do something and things get better and sometimes not. Right? Unpredictable. Short term, these things don't go away as fast as a thought. Exceptions, here's a real rub. There's a certain way in which the idea of the emergency reassures us that everything else is normal and okay. Don't worry. It's that it's off in Congo, it's in Sudan, it's in Bangladesh, it's not here. 
It's like all those newspaper stories that say, there was a plane crash. No British people were aboard. Right? And, and the, there's this sort of reassurance. Okay, right? I'm very sad there was a plane crash, but I'm glad I don't have to worry that it might have been people I know. Um, and there is this way in which something that I think may actually not be entirely true is reinforced by this imaginary. That is, I'm not sure there is a normal global order. I think there's an awful lot of normal global disorder that is sort of masked by this contrast. And I think that much, if there is a normal global order, it actually colludes in causing a lot of the emergencies. And so we're made to think that these are these idiosyncratic events in distant places pulling attention away from that. It's an ideology, in a sense. So take the emergency that took place in Palestine, right, and which is still called an emergency, right? the dispossession of Palestinians who wind up in neighboring countries living in refugee settlements 60 years later. Right? It wasn't sudden, right? and it certainly wasn't short-term. It was terrible. Right? But the same thing goes on. Indian partition. Right? It happened like a slow-motion film sequence in which people could see it coming, knew it was going to be terrible. It took long enough in the development that the American Journal of Sociology published an article of likely demographic consequences of Indian partition while it was in discussion and happening. And you know academic journals. They don't publish that fast. Okay? Right? Um, and it's devastating. And partition gets repeated with the partition of North and South Sudan and all these things. These are things that are much more anticipated. They're not sudden and predictable in short term. They're understood that way. Haiti's earthquake, right, in both literal and short-term senses and more long-term, was predicted, the major earthquake in Haiti. Right? So Port-au-Prince is known to be built on the fault. It's known to be dangerous. It's known to be hugely overpopulated. The population is there largely for political and economic reasons, not because it's just a great place to live. It has millions more people than are safe. And in fact, seismologists did forecast the quake. Of course, the seismologists were Cuban, which actually reduced the extent to which their forecasts had the effect they might have had um, in this. But nonetheless, there are very accurate forecasts from Cuba the earthquake. Right? An emergency is a kind of focal point in which the media and events and sometimes international organizations come together to call our attention to something. And that can be powerful for good because we then try to help, but it can also be powerfully misleading. So take the Lampedusa boating, quote, accidents. Um, and what are they? Right? Remember that we had in one week it's three different sinkings of boats, refugees crossing the Mediterranean. Okay. So you can say, oh, the Lampedusa incidents off this island, there are these, these tragedies. And they are tragedies. You know, we can go on and on about that story. But we don't call attention to this, this tragedy. But it's abstracted out. Why are people crossing the Mediterranean there? Right? And there are a lot of reasons. You go very far back. But let me give two of the things that are obscured by talking about this and focusing on it this way. One is the vast majority of the people who die are Eritreans fleeing dictatorship in Eritrea. 
um, and an oppressive environment and in lack of economic opportunities. And they're getting to Sudan and not finding new and better economic opportunities because an old international regime in which refugees were treated pretty well is beginning to break down. And then they're trying to make their way overland to Libya or other places um, to try to take boats to Europe. So there's a push factor story that is not sudden and short term. Eritrea has been a very sad story for a number of years. Okay. But what about the other end? Europe changes its refugee laws, its asylum laws, so that you cannot apply for asylum if you are persecuted in any other place except on European soil. It used to be the case you could apply for asylum while you were in Africa or North Africa in these countries and potentially be resettled, find out we could get it or not. But then it's changed in the wave of anti-immigrant sentiment in Europe to the fact that only those people who've already made it here. So Europe is effectively saying, you want a chance? Get on one of those boats. Right? That's European policy that is causing this. It's not just a disaster. It's not just sort of an accident that happens unpredictably. It's made predictable from both ends by the bad situation in Eritrea and by European policy in this. So emergencies that ostensibly are exceptions to the normal turn out to have a lot of connections to the normal. Gee, nuclear reactors melt down. Wonder where those nuclear reactors came from, right? I wonder why they were built, where they were built, or with the plans they were built with, or something. This isn't out of nowhere. These are not all acts of God in that sense. So to understand emergencies as always the results of a breakdown of order rather than as results of the way international order works is problematic. Last major point. Declaring a humanitarian emergency authorizes outsiders to act. Or it's largely about that. So outsiders will help in some fashion. They'll help those other people who are the insiders, the locals. Doesn't necessarily ask the locals, and it's sort of complicated. Increasingly, the outsiders are military. A movement that starts with its rejection of politics, rejection of economics because they're corrupt, which has roots in the Red Cross and the idea of neutrality, begins to be engulfed in a new structure of wars, in which it's very hard to deliver assistance in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan or Colombia during the FARC wars where these pictures were taken, um, or in Syria today without the assistance and the protection of people with guns. So even without the idea of humanitarian war, which is a very problematic concept, the entanglement of humanitarian action has been increasingly problematic. There have been more humanitarian workers killed because their neutrality was not, they were not seen as neutral by both sides, they were soldiers. There's more dependence. And it turns out there are good things happening too. So it turns out, for example, a lot of humanitarian action is logistics. A lot of what humanitarians do is fly supplies to distant places in the world. Who's really good at that? Actually, militaries are really good. And Walmart. Walmart actually contracts humanitarian support services, right? The US government, among others. So in fact, giant corporations and giant militaries are really good at getting assistance to people long distances away. But what that does is kind of undo the original notion of what the humanitarian project was and the idea of this pure response to human suffering. It's a problem, right? 
creates all sorts of issues, and it makes us ask, well, what will happen now in all of this? But it also makes us ask, where does this leave the people in the middle of humanitarian emergencies? Are they just the suffering masses? Right? Or is there some way that we could approach them as human beings with a voice whose solutions could be politics in their own lives, making new situations in their lives, and do we have to understand things and have a slightly different imaginary to accomplish that? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we have now uh, until about 8 o'clock for questions and answers. Thank you for a very thought-provoking presentation, Craig. Um, and does anyone want to start off with a question? Here? Here? Mm -hmm. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I was just thinking at the end, how do you think... Sorry, is this not here? Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I was just thinking at the end, how do you think um, technology is possible in um, changing the way we look at subjects with voices instead of suffering masses? The question is, how does technology change this picture in a certain sense? This picture is actually really recent. This is Libya um, about uh, three years ago. The, um, so there was a lot of technology and it didn't solve the problem. I think we sometimes have, have illusions about that, but there are real possibilities too. And, the, um, and there, there are various bits of this. So part of the thing that goes on is I think technology has even speeded up the sense of immediacy and connection and the visual, uh, the role of visual media um, in this as in other spheres and sort of increased that. But it's also created a new support system. Internet information technologies now um, are enable people to do more small-scale action, enable people to follow up more and find out how their money is spent and what went on in, in various ways. And that creates the potential, right now I think it's only a potential, for more connections, less anonymity, for more ability to connect to people you're trying to help in one way or the other at a distance. Um, and, and more ability to you know, sort of probe into what our organization's doing. Um, otherwise, I don't know that I think it changes it dramatically um, in this. I think around the edge, there are a variety of ways in which assistance can be delivered more efficiently thanks to new technologies, and information is more ubiquitous. The information gets out more fully and faster from everywhere. Um, but I'm not sure that it just lines up on one side or the other and changes the whole picture. There are interesting things going on in related areas like development. Like I think support, people who want to do something helpful are often more likely now to go to um, a Kickstarter kind of website or to Kiva or something like that and invest in development at a distance so that there are other kinds of projects that have become possible um, because of technology um, at the same time. Okay. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I request you to make a comment about uh, silent emergencies or silent disasters. It opens, it happens so much, but more attention is given to let me call them loud disasters, landslides, floods. Okay, so so-called natural disasters, landslides, floods, and so forth, and these are the the. Uh, 
there's a good line about these in our cost, that there are all unnatural disasters in a certain way, that almost all natural disasters have a component of human cause, that landslides involve the way the land has been used and where houses have been built and things like that. Um, and and you know, planning is available for floods, but it's not used the way that it should. So often what look like, un, like natural disasters have bigger components of human cause than we recognize. Not completely. You know, there can be just bad weather or other things happen. Um, but, but there's often more going on to them. They're um, more predictable in the long run. That Not that you can say on January 24th there will be an earthquake or on, on May 18th there will be a flood, but that the places that suffer these suffer them over and over again to a large extent. And so the ability to prepare the biggest improvements, when we ask about technology, the biggest improvement that's taken place and, and it could be much bigger in humanitarian assistance, is distributed stockpiling of supplies. Saying things like, there are floods in Bangladesh. There are floods recurrently in Bangladesh. So prepare for that. Don't wait until it happens and then put stuff on a ship and send it to Bangladesh. Stockpile locally in distributed ways and manage and have local people ready. The organizations that do the most work, best of most effective work are often those that have large local staff and work in a continuous way in places rather than people going from long distance. So natural emergencies are um, among those that benefit most from um, preparation um, in various ways. Uh, but they continue um, and continue to cause serious damage, and they affect the poor um, much more than the rich. So when there is a um, storm in New Orleans, a very huge storm that caused billions of dollars of property damage, it had very minimal loss of life. Right? Rich countries are buffered in a certain way that is different from what happens when there's a similar storm in a poor country. And there's much more loss of life in that. So you can say there's a humanitarian tragedy. You can also say poverty is the biggest factor in explaining who dies, not the weather. And that the thing to work on is poverty. So right, to, right at the back. Yeah. I'm sorry to make you run up there. But he had his hand up first. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit or give your thoughts on uh, humanitarianism and perhaps humanitarianism, kind of a darker side, like a humanitarian, humanitarianism as a political tool. So, for instance, if we take uh, a look at Angola, where like close to 500,000 people have died, and then you take a look at you know, countries like Congo, where, which don't get a lot of attention, but then you, you get countries like, I don't know, Libya and perhaps Sudan, Nigeria, yeah. and others that get a lot more attention. And, and not, not only that, but in certain humanitarian spaces, on one hand, uh, it becomes a political tool where it is, you know, you are sending uh, arms and military and mercenaries. On the other side, you're sending hum humanitarian workers. Sure. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. Good question. So one political consequence or one political use is just that humanitarianism sometimes can distract you from something else going on. But the main question is around um, the sort of selectivity that goes on to which emergencies get a lot of attention and which get less. Which of those that get a lot of attention get military attention, um, which of them get 
the delivery of, of uh, food and medicine and so forth, and how they get entangled in larger political stories. So the Sudan is a great example of this, but there are many. And the um, way in which there, is, there are both things going on, but how they're used are significant. So the, um, there are a variety of people delivering humanitarian assistance in the Sudan at various times. And there are different sites within the country where things are going on. Darfur becomes famous. Um, and it becomes famous, and we're told things like, well, there are, um, you know, there are good rebels, the justice and equality movement, and there are these bad Janjaweed. Um, I was actually, I had to cut lots of sides. I was, another version of the talk I would have been pointing out, who are indistinguishable. Right, I was going to show you two pictures and see if you could guess who was who in this. Um, but, but these are, are people in Darfur who are getting mobilized for and against the government in various ways, often changing size depending on who's paying what when. Um, then there are moral campaigners, Mia Farrow um, and uh, uh, I'm blocking his name now. What's the, the guy who organizes? Yes, thank you, George Clinton, um, who organize um, outside intervention. They're famous, they're celebrities, celebrity activism gets mobilized. Can you hear me okay without the microphone? I thought so. The, um, the, the, uh, they are concerned about the uh, situation in the South, particularly. Now, that's something that's come to the attention originally largely through Christian activists who see the Southerners as Christians being persecuted by Muslim Northerners and anti-slavery activists. And there is enslavement. It's not that there's nothing happening. But the story comes to be organized mainly in religious terms, which aren't primary to the local story. That then feeds into the U.S. government, which has its own issues in Sudan. It feeds into a, a global project. This is a technology story where, as I will say, I think technology made no difference, but the Sentinel surveillance effort to get um, uh, funding for satellite surveillance of the whole of Sudan in order to watch the movements of people and try to head off potential abuses and, and bad things happening. Now, lots of bad things happen in the course of this, but this becomes part of a global monitoring, part of the global intensification of surveillance. Um, these people get connections in the U.S. Congress, which begins to sort of take sides in this, which actually prolongs the war in many ways. Um, and so in both Darfur and the South, one of the things that's happened is there's kind of a confusion because from Washington or Hollywood, Darfur and the South look like the same place, but they're actually really different regions in Sudan with different local stories and different things happening. So you get a variety of people involved. There's oil at stake in this. So you've got various international purchasers of oil. So the, um, you could ask the questions a different way around and say, what keeps the humanitarian emergencies going on so long, and in whose interests are they? And you would find out that part of the answers point back to the United States. Part of them point to the government in Sudan. It's not like it's a really nice government. That was the point. Um, and part of them point to other people. Um, but the, there is this international production um, of it, and this use of it to tell a moral story about Islam. Um, that, well, here we have another, a Muslim country that is doing bad things to its population, and that becomes part of the story as it gets used um, by Western media, kind of almost accidentally, and politicians sometimes rather intentionally. The man right in the middle. Yeah. Well, I think one of the earliest events from human intervention, if I'm right, that 
at the death of Solferino, um, Henri Dunant was so upset by the carnage that he established a Red Cross, which still exists, and if I'm right, it is because he saw the carnage at that battle, which, if I'm right, it would have been Napoleon III and Oster. Could you say, do you, would you agree with, is that one of the, the founding concepts of this humanitarian intervention? Absolutely. I had Henri Dunant's picture up and, and, and a painting of him in front of a backdrop, which was the Battle of Solferino. And so this story of Henri Dunant traveling, a Swiss businessman who's traveling, but also an evangelical, um, which matters, but a, who is um, a, a Christian who is moved by the suffering of those, and in a key way, moved by the suffering of strangers. It's like a, um, you know, a, a another version of the Good Samaritan story. Henri Dunant is a Good Samaritan. He's not somebody of those people. He is somebody who sees the suffering and wants to do something about it. And, and that's one of the two sort of threads with Florence Nightingale that go into the founding of the Red Cross, which is indeed still with us um, and is, is still very much a part of the story of humanitarian assistance today and which has retained from that time a very strong ethic of neutrality um, and very strict limits on how it works. If you looked at all the humanitarian organizations, you would see lots of variation from the ICRC, from the Red Cross at one end, and one particular version of the Red Cross especially, um, through Médecins Sans Frontières and so forth, still pretty much at that end, onto organizations that do more mixtures of um, human rights and humanitarian work or mixtures of developing and human- development and humanitarian work um, or are more um, engaged in, um, if you will, project shopping. Because part of what you would see going on is that Médecins Sans Frontières and the ICRC have a sort of brand position in this and get funding in a fairly continuous way and can choose where they work. As you move into um, humanitarian organizations that are less well-placed in the field, you find that they have to advertise and raise new money for each emergency they work in to some extent. They're much more reactive and dependent um, in that way, and so that's a differentiation too. The woman at the front. Yeah. Maybe they'll be able to hear at the back if you use the mic. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I would just like to draw your attention to, uh, in fact, I'd like to request a comment. I'm going slightly back in time to the Second World War. And um, in the course of my research of the Polish refugees that who went to the gulags and then found their way into India, I found that the Red Cross records from the Soviet side have not been closed to date. That's on the, 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 Red the, the Red Cross uh, files oh, on, on, files, the, yeah, on the, the archives that have not opened. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the entire the project from the Soviet side is not yet closed. Right. It's still live in the uh, Geneva office. So, I mean, I would just like to, you know, if you would like to comment on it, on the political economy of, sure. uh, uh, you know, who aid is given to, how it is given, what is recognized, and of course, yeah. the, this last slide, which is so important, because those people are completely unrecognized, they're, they're not compensated, and uh, dispersed, dismembered, the community yeah. has been dismembered and dispersed throughout the world. Yeah. There are a, this is, so there, there are two entwined stories here, one about the um, way in which action on the uh, Soviet side of this and some other cases 
Um, not only um, may have been different, but may not be accessible because the archives haven't become available and we can't see what's going on, but also the particular cases of groups who are um, displaced uh, and uh, suffer in these contexts. And the whole story doesn't become known um, in a certain way. The history is missing from our history of the world. And I think that this is um, an important thing. And it's also another reminder that that there are patterns to this. It's not just sudden, unexpected bad things happen, that this is interwoven with larger histories, in this case, the Cold War, among other things, coming after World War II, that, that ended up to separating access to these archives of that, that, that limited the sight of who um, uh, could, could get access to try to work with any of this population and so forth. So a very important point. Katrina? Um, I, I agree that uh, this is a uh, modern phenomenon, as you describe it, and I think you imply that it's very much a European or Western phenomenon as well. Sort of, um, yeah. I want to ask a question which I'm, I'm not sure is an answerable question, but I think it's an interesting one. Has all this actually reduced human suffering? Um, yeah. And by that I mean... Would the implications, it's a counterfactual, what would have happened if, if of course it's unreal, if yeah. this had not evolved? Yeah. Um, and and um, if we can think in absolute terms, uh, uh, human suffering as right. such, then... So you're right, it's hard to answer your main question in any clear way. Ah, well, it's down 23% or something. They, um, and this is one of the points that, say, Médecins Sans Frontières activists make all the time. If you start by trying to ask that kind of question, it's very hard to ever do the work they do. Um, because what you do will always seem like a small thing in the face of large mass of human suffering and no measurable product. There are people who want to measure. So there are lots of projects now of accountability, um, that uh, humanitarian accountability projects that try to assess, as for any business venture, what's the best investment. So DFID, the British government agency that funds a, a certain amount of this work, um, is a very big promoter of log frames um, as an analytic tool, and um, measurement, accountability measurement, to want to say, um, uh, what was the reduction of excess mortality and excess morbidity um, per pound spent um, in any particular site? So what you have is a way of thinking there about cost effectiveness that reveals the spread of a certain kind of business and economic thinking in the world um, applied to this particular case. They do good work, but they have a very heavy bent towards this accountability project. And what Médecins Sans Frontières are trying to defend is this is directly a good thing to do, even if you only save one life, um, and there were lots of people suffering. Even if you can't measure the effect, it's still a good thing to do. And so they're making a directly moral claim. And there's been a shift in the field in which more and more people are caught up in the counting and accountability um, pursuit. And it changes things. It means that humanitarian organizations um, have more and more of their staff who are doing reports on accountability um, as distinct from patching up people in the field or various things. The, there's, it's a shift, but it's part of a larger shift in our society in which 
we become the audit society, as Mike Power put it, and we um, have an increasing investment in these kinds of management control tools there. Um, it's not all bad, um, not all good, but it changes the, the project. I did want to say that, I mean, to your first point, you're right. Uh, this is a story that comes up in the West, I think. This is a story of the way the West thinks about the rest of the world. It does lots of bad things, and this is an attempt to do good, but in a very particular way. Um, now, it gets taken up elsewhere. Japan is actually a very large humanitarian funder um, these days, and a very active humanitarian. So it's not that nobody else can take up this idea. I mentioned Islamic Relief, which is actually British, and in many ways sort of Western, though Muslim, but Mercy Malaysia. Or you could, I mean, it's not that this stays an entirely Western story. It becomes now a whole global way of trying to deal with um, bad things happening. But the paradox, which your question points up to us is that the whole thing is sort of made possible by trying to do something where you can't do everything. Um, and that is to, to do something good to ease the suffering of some people in the face of large-scale disasters. And so it's always up against the potential challenge. Well, shouldn't you have changed the government Shouldn't you have joined an army, gotten a gun, and shot the bad people? Shouldn't you, right, all of the other kinds of things you might have done to try to change things in the long term? Or what I would say, perhaps most importantly, inequality and poverty are behind a very large part of the suffering. If your goal is to reduce suffering, reducing inequality and poverty is probably a more strategic tool for large numbers of people to be affected. But if you've ruled out politics and you've ruled out economics, you have very few tools for reducing poverty. What you have is the ability to care for people in the concrete as they suffer, which is an entirely honorable thing, it seems to me. I can see so many hands going up, but I'm watching... I'll shorten my responses. Because <laughs> we're supposed to finish at eight. Um, shall we take one more question? Um, perhaps I think You're the boss. The gentleman at the front, um, it's been a long day. and We have so many hands coming up. We'll take we three can't. questions. I won't say anything. Shall we take three? You can choose which one to answer. Well, uh, thank you, Professor. My question relates to neutrality. Uh, it's reported that during the Second World War, ICRC knew about the gas chambers and, in the interest of neutrality, decided not to talk about it. And it's thought if they did talk about it, maybe the story would have ended differently. It's also reported that um, during the famine in Biafra, um, the ICRC knew that the government of uh, Nigeria was deliberately trying to commit a genocide by allowing for the famine to go on. Probably one of the reasons uh, uh, the, the people who started uh, Medicines on Frontiers broke with, uh, with ICRC. But also we're living in a situation where later conflict seems to uh, pay little attention to the neutrality of the actors in humanitarian action. Um, we also see situations, for example, in, uh, in the UN system where the UNHCR tries to be very neutral, but the UNDP is engaged in development work which inextricably is political. We've also continually seen situations where uh, the same organizations have to um, start from emergency and go into the political development-related issues, uh, making it very difficult to know to really trust the neutrality of the organization, right. especially for short, belligerents. Um, in your personal opinion, 
where does this kind of trajectory leave neutrality? Good question. Oh, I thought you were taking three. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I can just go ahead with that one. One up here. And I think that will be it. You you talked a lot about humanity, so I was just wondering what you actually thought it meant to be a human. (laughs) (laughs) And the last one. My question is just sort of a follow-up to your question about the auditing. And as we kind of look at the humanitarian sort of logic, I guess you could call it, that gets really embedded in the military and in the political, kind of like the gentleman's question referred to. Um, what happens is some of the architects of this violence and these that cause the emergencies, right, when they become the people who decipher the emergencies and the aftermath and get hired by like Human Rights Watch and things like that. I think Al Weisman's work talks about that. Okay. Um, that actually connects the first question, so I'll try to answer those two together because I think they both lead me to say that the, the central image of humanitarianism that we have per, for a longer time, but especially from the 70s through about 10 years ago, um, the core image, the image that Hollywood celebrated in a variety of movies and all these sorts of things, um, is, I think, under a great deal of pressure and cannot be sustained. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be any humanitarianism or that people won't care anymore, but that uh, neutrality um, is threatened and the motivational structure um, uh, is threatened. So I think that the pressure um, comes partly from people who, or the, the project was supported by people who were searching for a way to do something good and right in a world where so many of the possible choices seemed compromised and problematic and potentially corrupting. And so a lot of the drive is this, how can I do something good in a world that is so messy, in which there are these big, large-scale systems, and it's hard to know what will happen. And you know, even if you're a revolutionary, the revolution doesn't turn out the way you thought, and so forth. So there's this very strong drive. And that connects very strongly to the notion of neutrality. Right, that if you thought one side in war had it all right and one side in war had it all wrong, right, then you might not say, I want to just care for people equally. I want to take sides. But the notion that the, the whole project, like the war, is itself a bad thing. So there's an affinity for pacifists and humanitarian care. Or something. The, um, I think all this is in danger. And um, now, slightly different reasons between the two. I think neutrality is very, very, it's all but a lost um, project now. Um, and that the recent military engagements in humanitarian action just speed up the end of that. They aren't the whole story. It's been hard for other reasons. Um, but it's very hard for any organization to successfully claim um, neutrality. This has been a real tragedy for ICRC in many ways. The point about Biafra is exactly right. This is the one of the ways of tracing the origin of Médecins Sans Frontières. It has a kind of Paris origin and it has an in-the-field origin. The in-the-field origin is all about Biafra. And it's all about the point that um, we may not be taking sides in the sense of joining a war, um, but we can certainly point out evil when we see it and publicize it. And so that, remember the guy pointing, the the idea of witness wasn't a passive idea completely. Um, It was, I can't control it, I can't change it, I'm not joining the army, I'm not joining the government, but I 
I am pointing out what I saw. So Médecins Sans Frontières always has a little bit of a kind of politics, um, not so much of the nation state as of, um, of a kind of tacit denunciation um, by witnessing and pointing out what was witnessed saying something. And that, I think, is what people would say in the base um, joins with simply helping people. Um, but I think this is getting tougher, even for them, and much tougher for less well-placed, less well-known organizations. Um, so what that will mean, I don't know. The, a good bit of the news is this is more of a problem for the big Western organizations, um, because part of the difficulty for neutrality comes if you are coming in as British or American to places where the British or American governments have military engagements, it's really hard to say, I'm not one of them. I know I sound American, but really I don't like, you know, the, the, that's harder. And so local humanitarian, I think the future of humanitarian action is much more local humanitarian action. People nearby being able to do things. People who have a more easily um, uh, presented claim to be there, in a certain sense, play a bigger and bigger role in this. And I don't, and Again, that's not all good because there's something good about trying to care for people on a large scale, and there's something lost in that. Um, but I do think that the issue of neutrality comes alongside a whole history of compromises. It's really hard to be a humanitarian aid worker because you see injustice daily. You see violence daily, and you are called by your job, your humanitarian role, only to do certain things in response to it. Right, to help people medically or to help with food or to help have a camp for refugees. And that's a, a response, but it's sort of self-limiting. So you build up all of this sense of everything else, and you also have a sense, why isn't the world doing more? And so over, over drinks at night, humanitarians are an extraordinarily self-critical group. Um, doing research among humanitarian actors is, in a certain way, easy. You don't even have to ask for the interview. They want to tell you about all the conflicts they're wrestling with and the struggles and the compromise. And, well, the only way I could keep the camp open was to actually make this deal with the local military leader. And I can never say that, but it was the only way to do it, right? So that this living in a world where you got there because you wanted to be morally pure and you can't do anything good except by making compromises is a terribly difficult existential dilemma. And it's not an answer to the question of what I think it means to be human, except having the capacity for that, that kind of existential dilemma is part of what it is to be human. Um, that you think and you feel and, and you experience these conflicts um, within yourself trying to find something good to do. Well, Thank we, you. We can continue over drinks actually talking about these issues okay. outside I believe there is a reception outside for us um, but um, it, it's been a fascinating thought provoking um, moving and at times disturbing uh, discussion and presentation uh, it's a hard act to follow but the good news is that next year we do have another speaker lined up Professor Michael Walzer who will be um, following along similar lines, I, I would imagine, uh, to this discussion, which is exactly what Professor Halliday would have wanted. And so I would like us all to thank very much uh, Professor... <laughs>